Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we're in the final verses, chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. As we come to the end of the matter, the conclusion of the, the preacher's message to us, as I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, starting next Sunday and, and as we move towards Christmas, we're going to be looking at Christmas in the Psalms, various Psalms that point us to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and so point us to Christmas Day, uh, to the day in which the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So looking forward to that beginning next Sunday. But this morning, we look here in these last verses, and we have the preacher summarizing his sermon for us. Uh, What he has told us over now several months together, he wants to, to bring together in a final word what he calls the end of the matter. But in order to hear what the preacher has been trying to tell us all along, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come desperate for your help this morning, because Lord, we know that simply reading your word apart from the work of the Spirit uh, certainly will tell us certain things, but won't actually deal with our hearts. And so Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would open our eyes of faith this morning, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed, are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in 1940, Mortimer Adler wrote a classic book that has stayed in print to this very day uh, that is a fascinating book. It's a book about how to read a book. It's incredibly long, um, but that's the title, How to Read a book. If you were to pick up Mortimer Atler's classic, you would find that uh, he explores all sorts of interesting issues like um, various levels of reading and how we might attack different kinds of literature or key questions that we might ask about the book that we might pick up to read or approaches that we might take to becoming an analytical reader. As I skimmed through Adler's book, because I wasn't going to take all of my time reading a book about how to read a book, um, what I discovered was he didn't have my method of reading in that book. I think I've mentioned my method of reading to you in the the past. I like to, to pick up a book and read the first 20 pages of the book, 
and the last 20 pages of the book and see if I want to spend my time reading the rest of the book. Um, he doesn't cover that method. I'm kind of shocked about that. But if you were to follow my method of reading and apply that to this book of Ecclesiastes, you would have linked together the preacher's initial words, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You would have connected those words to these words we've just read this morning, the, the final sections of verses 9 to 14 of chapter 12. And if you had taken those words, vanity of vanities, smoke of smoke, vapor of vapor, all is a passing vapor, and connected it together with these final words about the end of the matter, what you would have discovered is that the preacher, in his attempt to show you reality as it is, not as you wish it were, he, he shows you this reality, namely, your life is a short vapor. And since your life is a short vapor, and since this world and its, all of its pleasures are passing away, then your task each day is to center your life on God. Your task each day is, in your vapor-like life is to center your life on God. And if you center your life on God, then you'll be able to receive all of the blessings, all of the good gifts that the Father gives and rejoice in them and know joy in them because you've learned not to prize the gifts but to prize the giver. I think that's what the preacher means here as he says and kind of trumpets blaring, the end of the matter, all has been heard. He's, he's telling you, here's the conclusion. Here's the summary. This is the end. It's the purpose for which everything has been written from ch chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 12, verse 8. Here's the purpose of it all, that you will center your life on God. And you will enjoy the good gifts that he gives. This is the way of wisdom. It's the way of living our short lives well in, this, in the midst of this passing world. But in order to help us to see this one last time, the preacher reminds us about wisdom's sources. Wisdom's sources. I mean, one of the things that's striking about these verses that we've read together is they feel so different from everything that's gone before. Now, the preacher begins to refer to himself in the third person. There's a kind of formal aspect to what he's saying. And, and these differences uh, verses 9 to 14 represent from the rest of the book has caused some scholars to, to be utterly confused. Some suggest there's two, three authors of this book one or two editors that put it together. They found verses 9 to 14 somewhere and tacked them on to the end. Other scholars suggest that really the only, the only true words that are said in the entire book are verses 9 to 14, and they're a corrective to everything else that's gone before. But I don't think we, we need to say any of those kinds of things. After all, the preacher wouldn't be the first person in the world who's ever referred to himself in the, in the third person. Remember Bob Dole, the senator from Kansas? He used to do that all the time. Bob Dole this, Bob Dole that, Bob Dole the other thing. Or for those of you who pay attention to college football, Deion Sanders does that. Coach Prime does this, Coach Prime does this, Coach Prime's going to do this. 
right? I mean, people refer to themselves in the third person all the time. He's doing this for a certain kind of rhetorical effect. But another reason why we should see these verses as connected to what goes before is because, as I've already suggested, verses 9 and 10 serve as a bookend to chapter 1, verse 1. There he identifies himself as the preacher who, who styles himself like a king in Jerusalem. And he comes back to himself in chapter 12, verse 9, to remind us that he is a source of wisdom. So what does he say? Look at it again. Chapter 12, verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So not only does the preacher tell you that he knows that he is one of the wise, but he also tells you that he's been at work in this, in this letter, in this book, trying to teach you knowledge. That's his motivation. That's why he weighed and studied and arranged all these proverbs with much care. Now, some of these proverbs were longer prose kinds of wisdom sayings. Others looked a whole lot like the proverbs you find in the book of Proverbs. But be that as it may, the preacher arranged his material so that you might gain knowledge. And in order to do that, he gave words of delight, words of beauty, yes, but ultimately, words of truth. He gives words of delight, but ultimately words of truth. And that speaks, I think, to the, to the relationship between the form and the content of Ecclesiastes. He, he, he's trying to give things to us in a memorable fashion, in a delightful fashion. But the preacher has as its, as his, at his heart the desire to communicate something true. Why is that important? Why am I telling you that? Well, it's because many evangelicals have approached this book and questioned whether it tells us true things about God's world. One well-beloved study Bible uh, claimed that Ecclesiastes made, quote, no claim for revelation but which inspiration records for our instruction. That is, inspiration, so these, the Holy Spirit superintended the writing of this book, but the, the study Bible was suggesting that what's here isn't actually true revelation of God. True things about God, true things about his world. Now, what, what's represented here, according to this understanding, is actually secular wisdom, Wisdom of life under the sun, about on the same level as when the Holy Spirit, by way of inspiration, records the words of the devil. The Holy Spirit causes those words to be recorded in the Bible, but of course the devil's words aren't to be paid attention to. And so Ecclesiastes, that was the point of the study Bible, but that, that's exactly wrong. The preacher here is telling us he is a source of wisdom. What he has said throughout his book is not just beautiful, but it's also true. He's told us about reality as it is. And, and as he has, he has revealed something about God and his world to us. And so when we come to this, these passages, we come to the in, inspired and infallible and errant word of God, yes, but also the word of God that reveals truth about God. Because the ultimate source of wisdom isn't the preacher, 
but his shepherd. That's what he actually says in, in verse 11. He says, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now, the preacher has sought to point us, to move us, to, to goad us, if you will, towards a life well-lived. But he confesses that ultimately, any wisdom that he's, he possesses, any wisdom he's communicated to us, has come from one shepherd. And while it might be possible for the, the preacher to identify himself as, as a shepherd, I think our ESV Bible's get it right when they capitalize that word shepherd because what he's what he's saying ultimately is that the source of wisdom the only true source of wisdom for life in this world and for life in the next is God the true shepherd the good shepherd and of course you know that the bible and the especially in the old testament but also in the new identifies God as Israel's shepherd is the shepherd of his people. So Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want or I shall not lack anything. Psalm 80, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Psalm 100, you are a shepherd and we are your sheep, the flock of your pasture. Over and again in the Psalms, but also elsewhere in the Old Testament, Israel's God the God of his people, he is represented as a shepherd. And so what the preacher is saying here is this, yes, I am a source of wisdom, but all the wisdom that I possess comes from God, from Israel's shepherd. These these words of delight, these words of truth, these sayings, they're revelation from God. They're God-breathed words for you. But friends, since that's the case, Since this book of Ecclesiastes, as well as the rest of the Bible, is is God's wisdom for you, then it should serve as as the source of wisdom for your life. Certainly there are other places you might go for wisdom. To family, to friends, to parents, grandparents, co-workers, lots of potential sources, but there's only one true source of wisdom. And it's found right here in in this book in the inspired and infallible and errant word of God. I mean, it's part of why the preacher is going to go on in verse 12, and he's going to say to us, My son, beware of anything beyond these, that is the the words of wisdom given by the shepherd, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, my wife can certainly attest to you over 30 years that of the making of many books there is no end, because I come home with many, many, many books, uh, and Amazon was both the most wonderful thing that happened to me and the worst thing that happened to our bank account. And the students among us that are finishing up the semester, they can certainly say much study is a weariness of the flesh. But, but what, what the preacher is saying is something more than that. Now he's saying that, that the exhausting search on which he's gone on which he talks about especially in chapters 1 and 2, but references elsewhere through this book, it will only lead to dead ends. So that next great book, whatever it may be, that we think is going to be the golden key to unlock our spirituality or fix our life, it's a dead end. 
or the great amount of study that we apply ourselves to, whatever our discipline might be, if we think that's where life's meaning is going to be found, that's a dead end. Or pleasure, or profit, or power, or prominence, or whatever pathway we run down, if it's, if it's not centered on, on this God, who is the shepherd of his people, and who speaks his words of wisdom in this holy scriptures, it's going to be a dead end. It's going to be a dead end. True wisdom is to be found in the true and beautiful words of Holy Scripture. Which means, are you going to pick up the book and read it? I mean, if, if this book is the place where true wisdom is to be found, yes, it's important to be here on Sundays to open the book. But isn't it vital for us to pick up the book over and again, day by day, to come to these true and beautiful words that are, that are not simply pieces of literature like the poetry of, of George Herbert or the plays of William Shakespeare or the, the top 10 novel that's being published today, but these are actually words of true wisdom for life in this world. Shouldn't we open the book? I, I, that's part of the reason why our session voted a couple of months ago to make 2024 the year that we as a church read through the Bible in a year together. It's so that we would get into this discipline of opening the Bible, these holy scriptures, inspired, infallible, inerrant words of wisdom, and to, to, to create space for the Holy Spirit to take his word to speak to us. It's, it's, I have used this reading plan we're going to be using for 14 years. And that what's striking to me is, is, is on those days that, that I most need to hear from God, it's that week's reading or that day's reading that's just that I didn't plan. It's just in the plan. It's the next thing to check off. And yet God takes his words of wisdom and speaks into my life in a real and tangible way. But friends, that will not happen if you do not pick up the book. Because these are God's words, the true source of wisdom. And so when we pick up this book, and we, we open its pages, and we, we come to the source. What do we find? What, what's wisdom's summary for us? Well, that's what the preacher says in verse 13. The end of the matter, he says, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So when he wants to sum up what wisdom is, what does he say? Fear God. Fear God. Now, of course, we know that. If you have any familiarity with this section of the Bible, the wisdom literature, whether in Job or Psalms or Proverbs or here in Ecclesiastes, you know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7. But we've heard that in this book already in Ecclesiastes. Chapter 3, verse 14. God has done it so that people might fear before him. Chapter 5, verse 7, but God is the one you should fear. Chapter 8, verse 12, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. So we've, we've heard this language of fearing God before, but that doesn't mean it's, we necessarily like it, that we're comfortable with it, right? I mean, 
It's easy for us to put to, to delight in, to talk much of the love of God. It, it's, it, we can even get our heads around the holiness of God, that God is transcendent other, that he's utterly pure. Okay, we can get our heads around that. But to, to be confronted over and again with the fear of God, what does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean the, the terror of the Lord, uh, the, the kind of fear that we might have of someone who's coming to do us harm. What does the preacher mean here when he says, this is the end of the matter, this is the conclusion, the purpose of it all, fear God? What does he mean? Well, Sinclair Ferguson, I think, was helpful for me in trying to understand this. He, he put it this way. He said, the fear of God, in some ways, defies our attempts at definition because it's really another way of saying knowing God. It is a heartfelt love for him because of who he is and what he has done. A sense of being in his majestic presence. It's a thrilling awareness that we have this greatest of all privileges mingled with a realization that now the only thing that really matters is his opinion. To have the assurance of his smile is everything. To feel that he frowns on what we do is desolation. To fear God is to be sensitive to both his greatness and his graciousness. It's to know him and to love him wholeheartedly and unreservedly. I think that's fabulous. We might try to bring those thoughts together in this way. To fear God involves both reverence and response. To fear God involves reverence and response. It certainly involves reverence, but, but not simply the kind of reverence that we might have if we, as we enter into a majestic cathedral or we participate in a, in a funeral. Now, the reverence that is the fear of the Lord is more like the reverence we would have for, for a revered teacher or a dearly beloved friend or perhaps a a well-loved grandparent or, or parent. As, as Ferguson puts it, to have the assurance of that teacher's smile or, or that well-beloved friend's smile or your grandparent or parent's smile, it means everything. And to feel his frown sends us into a tailspin. It's the same way we feel towards God. We, we reverence him knowing we already have his smile in Jesus Christ. God doesn't frown at us in Jesus Christ. No, his, his face shines upon us, and yet we, we desire to keep that smile. We don't desire to do anything that would cause that smile to, to even have a hint of flickering or going away. His opinion what, is what matters to us. And so the fear of God involves reverence, but it, but it also involves response. Because the end of the matter is not just fear God, it's fear God and keep his commandments. The response towards this one whom we revere is to obey what he says. But, but we obey God because we know him. And because we've known, been known by him. Because we love God and have been loved by him. Because we delight in God and know that he delights in us already. Because we've known his smile in Jesus Christ. Because we've received this greatest of privileges. We want to keep it. 
Because we've known God's good opinion of us in Christ. We desire to remain in it. And so we act in ways that are consonant with the fear of God. We, we forsake ways of disobedience. Ways that we know are repugnant to God because, because we know we have his smile and we, we dare not lose it. We turn from things that we know would displease him because we want to keep on pleasing him. And we do these things because this is our life. The, the ESV calls it the whole duty of man. But more literally, it's just the whole of man. This is what the, the whole of a man or the whole of a woman is. is to, to reverence and to respond to this God who, who's shown us such goodness, such grace in Jesus Christ. It's to center our lives on him. Friends, because our lives are vapors, because there's smoke, because there's fog, we can't grasp them. And because this world is passing away, we fear him. We respond. We, we, we reverence this God. We're sensitive to his greatness, his graciousness. We live in ways that please him. And so we know joy both now, but also in the future. Because there is coming a final day. Verse 14, God will bring every good deed into judgment. With every secret thing, whether good or evil. That is reality as it is. Not as we wish it would be, some other alternative. The reality is we were made, you and I, we were made for eternity. And our spirits will return to God. There will be a final judgment day. And on that day, for all those who've known God smiling in through Jesus Christ, we will come uh, to, to paradise the blast. We will stand there in the presence of the king. We will hear good words. And in those, those good words, in that moment in the future, the joys that we've known in this life that have come and go and have felt transient, they'll be solid joys. They'll be lasting treasures. But also on that day when we come to the judgment and we'll be able to look over our lives with the eyes of God in some ways, to see his grace, to see his goodness, to understand how much he's done for us in and through Christ. In that day, we will truly understand how much we owe, how much we owe to this God and his goodness and his grace. Robert Murray McShane was a 19th century Scottish preacher who served at St. Peter's Church in Dundee, Scotland. Our friend David Robertson would serve that church some 200 years later. But McShane was a remarkable man with a ministry that only was a short time. He actually died at the age of 29 as a result of, of the typhus epidemic. And yet, even in his short life, he had, he had come to understand something of the way of wisdom. He understood that life was a vapor. He understood that this world was passing away. He understood that he would face God one day. He understood that if he would center his life on God, he could stand before God on that last day in Jesus Christ, unafraid and unashamed. And on that day, he believed he would fully grasp how much he owed to Christ. We only have one hymn in our hymnal written by Robert Murray McShane. It goes like this. When this passing world is done, 
when is sunk young glaring sun, when we stand with Christ in glory, looking o'er life's finished story, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When I stand before your throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see you as you are, love you with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side, by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show, by my love, how much I owe. Friends, this life matters. This moment matters. God is calling you in this life, in this moment, to enjoy his good gifts, to, to, to recognize that these good things that you've given thanks for over this past week, as you've gathered with family and friends, you went around the table, and if you're like us at all, you, you start to name your blessings, what you're thankful for around the table. You've done that. And those good gifts came from the hand of a good shepherd, a good shepherd who loves you and delights in you and laid down his life for you. As you, as you consider all of these gifts and all of these graces, as you center your life on this God who loves you and sent his son to die for you, consider how you use the moments. Consider whether by, by, by your love in return to the love you've already received, you'll show the world how much you owe. Because friends, there is coming a day when you will see your Savior face to face. And I promise you, in that moment, you will fully know how much you owe. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we do owe you so, so much. It's incalculable, really that you would leave heaven's glory, that you would move into our neighborhoods, that you, would, that you would live in our place, the life that we could not live. You would die the death that we dare not die. You would rise again on the third day to rescue us from the fate that we deserve, namely the judicial wrath of God. This is amazing love. How can it be? Lord, we pray that you would grant us eyes to see this morning how much we owe. But Lord, we pray too that in seeing this, we might have yet another taste of your joy. That you've granted us such a great gift, such grace called salvation. That we have sure, a sure confidence that one day, one day, we will see the king passing on his way the saints triumphant, clothed in bright array. And in that day, Lord, we'll sing hallelujah. We long for that day. But until then, Lord, we praise you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.